At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Support for WABE comes from Capital Good Fund, introducing Georgia Bright Solar Lease Program, a new rooftop solar initiative designed to create pathways to equitable and inclusive solar, sustainability, and monthly savings for Georgians. Learn more at georgiabright.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The first ghetto in the world dates from the year 1516, a Walden section where Jews had to live in the city of Venice. Musical tales of the Venetian ghetto, screening at the Atlanta Jewish Film Festival, tells a story about Jewish history and culture in Venice that's not widely known. Later this hour, we'll hear from the film's creator, Hershey Felder. Plus, WABE's H. Johnson talks about master jazz whistler Ron McCroby in H. Johnson's Jazz Moment. First... Playwright Katori Hall won the 2021 Pulitzer Prize for Drama for The Hot Wing King. It's on stage through March 5th at the Alliance Theater, and she's also directing the production. She joins us now via Zoom to talk about the show. Katori Hall, welcome to City Lights. Hey, hey, I'm so happy to be here. Happy to have you. I read that you consider this play a love letter to your brother and his partner. How does their story inform the narrative for The Hot Wing King? Well, I've really been blessed to have been a witness to their love, but also to their struggle as a couple, but also as individuals. And so having had a seat at the table (laughs) in so many ways to their relationship, you know, I took a lot of inspiration. My brother, his name is (laughs) Wayne. Um, And so the character of Dwayne is definitely, um, it takes a lot of his, his skin, his memories, his, his mistakes. And yet, of course, there is artistic license. And his partner, real name Charles, is actually kind of split up over a a couple of characters in the play. I felt very blessed that, you know, my brother and his partner, these two Black gay men living in the South, have been so fiercely transparent with me about everything that they've gone through. And so, yeah, it's been truly, truly an amazing experience to kind of take their life and and figure out ways in which to fictionalize it but but yet just do my own thing uh, with it because there's there's it's not just their lives that I am 
you know, being inspired by his other friends and, and family as well. Now, did Wayne and his partner Charles actually participate in the hot wing contest or the festival that's at the center of this play? So what's very interesting about my brother and his partner is that they actually deal in barbecue. Charles is actually the founder and owner of an amazing Memphis barbecue spot called One and Only. However, I like hot wings. And so that's the to come through where it's just me, you know, putting in what I love, um, what I want to see on stage. And I, I, I'm just such a huge fan of hot wings. And it's so interesting. Po- most people think about Memphis and the first thing they think about is barbecue. When in all actuality, hot wings is one of the things that we're most famous for and we're, and we're kind of the best at. So I wish people knew a little bit more about the amazing hot wing spots that Memphis has. Well, Please tell us about your experience with the yearly Hot Wing Festival. I fell down a rabbit hole. <laughs> wow. Or or a chicken hole. I don't know. It was really delicious and fascinating. So sadly, I have never went to the Hot Wing Festival in Memphis because when I was supposed to go, that's when the pandemic happened. We actually had a trip planned to go. And yeah, with everything being shut down, I had, you know, read about it, did a lot of research, talked to people who had went, but I was writing the play while I was living uh, mostly in New York, even though I'm a Memphis native. So that's the reason why <laughs> I sadly have never been to the, the doggone festival. In terms of culture, why is the Hot Wing Festival important to Memphis and even more broadly speaking. I think the fest, this specific festival, it's a gathering point. You know, all these people from all across, not only Memphis, but all across the South, they come here to this amazing city to articulate their version of the culinary arts. I think the hot wing is <laughs> it's a seemingly kind of basic, almost fast food-esque piece of food. And yet I think the creativity and the just ingenuity that people have when it comes to creating new flavors and bringing them to the tongues of people who come to the festival, I just think it's a reflection of just how there's so much creativity that still pulses through Memphis, whether it's the music or the It's just another way that we show up and we show out when it comes to our talent. And it just happens to be surrounding the culinary arts. Okay. Are there any wars with Buffalo, for example? Don't they think they invented Buffalo wings? Don't they claim that origin story? I feel as though if you you have a Memphis hot wing, the war will end. (laughs) All battles (laughs) will be won. They're they're just so tasty. There's like a long list of places that I've gone to. Ching's, to Supreme Wings, to to Crumpies. It's it's just Memphis is really, no pun intended, a hot spot for hot wings. Oh, uh, there are serious aspects of this play which is overall uplifting and joyful. Masculinity is 
a complex subject to tackle. How does the play address the sensitive topic and depict different expressions of masculinity? I think what's so beautiful about the play is that we, like all these flavors that we're presenting in regards to the hot wings, we're presenting this really wide ranging spectrum when it comes to masculinity, black masculinity and queerness. And then just thinking about the intersectionality of being black and male and queer, we put forth just this very complicated and nuanced portrayal of it. Oftentimes men who present as you know, super masculine or hyper masculine, oftentimes they don't get the consideration that they're even queer. And when those two identities occur in one body, it can be oftentimes discombobulating to people because oftentimes we think of gayness as a more feminine thing. But this play presents literally every different permutation of what being Black and queer and male can present as. In addition, you know, we have characters that are cishet to a father and son. And so to see how they battle with these kind of, I would say, archaic notions of masculinity and push past it in order to be present and be loving in the midst of this family and this family is also an very, a very important part of, of the play. The play features an all-male cast. Yes. Katori, <laughs> we live in an age where people can get very defensive about who gets to tell whose stories, although up front you state that this is a love letter to your brother. So you were up close and personal with the subject, but I was wondering if you faced any challenges in your approach to writing a play with all black male characters. You know what? Yes and no. I think it depends on the process. I think in earlier processes, I do think maybe my femaleness, my womanness may have been necessarily challenged, but there may have been a feeling amongst cast members that, oh, she, does she really know what she's talking about? Like, yes, this is a love letter to her brother, but she, you know, she's not a Black gay man. However, I feel as though good writers know that, you know, despite these labels and categories that um, we place ourselves in and sometimes um, that are placed upon us, at the end of the day, we're all human. And so I think oftentimes when I am writing, it's really not about a person's identity or a character's identity. It's really about what a character's biggest flaw is. And that's just a human thing or what their biggest need is, love. It's just a human thing. And so when I, you know, speak from that place, write from that place, I think over time, there is a level of trust that is cultivated between not only the writer and the actor, but also the actor and the director. And so now wearing both of those hats as writer and director in this third iteration of the play, I must say, I haven't really felt my womanness <laughs> ways that I have felt it before even though one cannot divorce themselves from their identity when they are doing their art. I think identity oftentimes has 
a huge impact of, uh, on what comes out of us, what pours out of us. But I must say that on this particular artistic journey, there's just been a lot of love and a lot of respect. And it's almost like, because I am a woman and a woman who has had experience with being in positions of power, I have been able to use that power and that privilege to hold space for environments, artistic environments that are very safe. And I think because I am a woman, that is important to me. Um, I'm sure there are some men who are directors or, or you know, uh, producers who do the same, but because of my particular lived experience, I think that I really, really try and understand why it's so important to create a safe space for artists who are telling the stories of marginalized people. If you just tuned in, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights, speaking with playwright Katori Hall. Her Pulitzer Prize-winning play, The Hot Wing King, is on stage now at the Alliance Theatre. So this is your first time directing the play. How has that influenced your viewpoint or perhaps your conception of the story? It's interesting. I came into the process knowing that I wasn't really going to change too much of the words. I knew that I was going to let it be, leave the blueprint as it is, um, because I do believe that as a writer, whatever you have written, whatever work, you know, at whatever time, it is a snapshot of who you were as a writer at that time. And there's no need to mess with the, the pictures of the past. It is what it is. And so because I had made that kind of promise to myself as a director, I stepped in and was able to like just do my directing job. Oftentimes when directors are doing new work, there's a lot of kind of <laughs> suggestions that are passed from director to writer, but you know, that, that wasn't happening this time because I had basically took the writer part of myself and threw her, you know, in, in a drawer. Yeah, <laughs> 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 <Right> here, <laughs> you can't talk to her. So I, I treated it as if I would treat any other work, Shakespeare, Ibsen, August Wilson, Lynn Nottage, whatever, was like, what is, what is she trying to say? What is he trying to say? What are they trying to say? How can I, as a director, make the story more clear, even if there may be problems in the script or, or challenges in the script? And so I came to it just very much thinking about things visually, thinking about things in 3D versus wanting to change or shapeshift the script, which I easily could have done, right? Because, you know, Katori, Katori the writer is here, but right now she's in a closet. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you very much. Not accepting any director's notes. <laughs> exactly. Talk about power. Right. It's a great amount of power, but I don't take it lightly. I don't take it lightly. Mm. Your work as an award-winning playwright is remarkable. An extensive list of credits. Most recently, you wrote and produced the Tina Turner musical. And 
My first encounter with your work, Tori, was hearing about you from Kenny Leon, whom I've known for decades. Hi, Kenny! Yes! Yes! And this was a minute ago. It was in 2011. Uh-huh. After he directed your play, The Mountaintop, on Broadway, he was in studio with me to talk about another production. And I am telling you, after we exchanged hugs, he said, Katori Hall. That's a name that will soon be very well known. Aw, Kenny, my Kenny. Yes, so your name has been with me for lo these 12 years, and it's a joy to follow your career. Your play, The Mountaintop, vividly reimagines the final night of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s life. And now it will premiere at the Geffen Playhouse in L.A. How has this play gained meaning for you and, by extension, for theater goers over the years. What's so interesting about the play is that even when it was produced for the very, very first time in London and not even you know on Broadway, it was a play that wasn't finished. And what I mean by that is, you know, at the end, we have a Dr. King that actually gets to see all of these moments of history that we have seen because we were we are lucky enough to be alive and to experience it. But unfortunately with his life being cut so short on April 4th, 1968, he would never get to see. He would never get to see Obama being inaugurated. He would never get to see, you know, the, the sadness that came from Trayvon Martin's death. He would never get to see those things. And, and yet the play holds space for us to see this bridge and watch him see the bad, the good, the ugly of America. And so every time this play gets done, every director has this opportunity to add to the play. It's a way to pass the baton, literally and figuratively, which is what Dr. King did when he was killed, when he was slain. A baton had to be passed that when the when a leader is taken away too soon, the followers have to realize that they're leaders too. They have to see the king in themselves. And the beautiful thing about this play is that every time people get to experience, they get to to stand and see that they too are kings, that they too are human and fallible just as he was. He was no saint, even though, you know, the history books, (laughs) you know, say otherwise. And yet, you know, this extraordinary yet ordinary human being changed the world. And it's what we can do too. So I hope that every time we do that play, people can realize and experience how close they are to King, even though he's no longer with us. Mm. Back to the hot wing King. With all the hardships that Black men in America face, 
Why did you choose to come from a place of joy and comedy in telling this story? I believe that Black joy is revolutionary because of all of the trauma, because of the constant imagery of dehumanization that we have to deal with, both as Black men and women. I just felt that I wanted to hold space for our laughter. Oftentimes we do use humor as a coping mechanism. The black community does. And so I really wanted to create a piece that would take on these previous notions of, yes, there is drama. Yes, there are hard times. And yet we push through, we are resilient. And there is love and there is laughter and there is joy in our lives. And that's actually the thing that defines us the most is our joy. Yet, unfortunately, when it comes to people talking about Black people, it's all oftentimes about the struggle. And so I think the struggle still exists. And I think the struggle still exists even inside of joy. And yet I wanted to leave this tattoo on the minds and hearts of audiences of Black joy. Black joy has is so much more powerful than Black pain. And um, it was just an important thing to add to my writing. And it's something that's actually always a part of my writing. Even when I'm, I am dealing with um, you know, deeper and, and, and darker, grittier subject matters, I, I do always tend to weave in humor because I do think that is a reflection of, uh, of actual Black art. I think Black art tends to operate in juxtaposition, whether it is quilting. I think about my grandmother and how she would pull all these scraps together, all these different colors that didn't seem to go together. And that to me is kind of, you know, one of the, the tenets of Black art in that we pull things that, you know, seemingly shouldn't go together horror, tragedy, and comedy, and we create this amazing gumbo that is not only tasty, but revolutionary. Oh, Katori Hall, what a joy and privilege to talk with you. Thank you so very much. Well, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Playwright Katori Hall is directing the Alliance Theater's production of her Pulitzer Prize-winning play, The Hot Wing King. It's on the Coca-Cola stage of the Alliance through March 5th. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. We're off to Italy in a moment, exploring Venice in the new documentary, Musical Tales of the Venetian Jewish Ghetto. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking.
Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. This is City Lights. I'm Lois Wrightsis. Thank you for listening. The pianist, actor, writer, and producer Hershey Felder is famous for his one-man stage shows about musical icons, including George Gershwin, Irving Berlin, Leonard Bernstein, and Tchaikovsky. He recently created a documentary that will have its world premiere on Monday at the Atlanta Jewish Film Festival. Hershey Felder joins me now via Zoom to talk about musical tales in the Venetian ghetto. Welcome to City Lights. Hi there, it's a pleasure to speak to you. Your career has centered on live performance, What inspired the transition from stage to screen? Well, it had always been in the cards. Once I got too old to hobble around the stage, if I wasn't able to hobble around the stage anymore, I would uh, turn to film. And what ended up happening was it happened 10 years prior because of the pandemic, I was actually planning the turnover to film 10 years hence. But all of a sudden, this pandemic took over the world. And I was faced with just shutting down all the business entirely and waiting to the end of the pandemic or figuring out a way to somehow entertain people and keep the staff working. It literally came down to that. How do we keep the staff working and entertain people during a time when people are not allowed to get together and certainly not able to go see live performances? And at the time, I was in Italy. I still am in Italy, which is where my main home is. At the time, it was my main home, you know, when I was off the stage for a a week or two, I would come home and then go right back on stage for 300 and some odd nights a year in the United States. It was what I would call the retirement home when I was going to be (laughs) when I was going to be done with the running around the world. I was going to come and this was going to be it. But here we were and I was ensconced in, in Florence, in Italy and in Venice, where where home is. And I thought, well, you know, anywhere you point a camera in any one of these towns, it's the most glorious set in the world. Why don't I just start making movies 10 years before I thought uh, I would? And it turned immediately into something that the public wanted. I was very lucky. They had nothing to do in general. They were locked at home. There were these Zoom things, but I was very fortunate because we were able to very early on create a bubble of Italian artists and the few who were with me from the United States and create shows for a public during a time where there was no other product being produced. This movie that you're talking about that's going to open in Atlanta is actually the 17th movie that was made in a period of three years. So we worked fast, we worked hard. But uh, when I came to Venice and I said, I'd love to tell the story about the Jewish ghetto, which is a fascinating story. It's so colorful. Would you talk about the etymology of the word ghetto and its connection to Venice? Most certainly. Well, people don't know this, but 
the word ghetto has so many meanings in terms of the world now and so many meanings that uh, are negative. I mean, whether one speaks about in the period of the Holocaust, the ghetto, or where one speaks refers to inner city and refers to that as the ghetto or whatever have you. There are so many connotations to this, but in fact, the origins of the word ghetto come from Venice, Italy. The Republic of Venice gave Jews an island because uh, Jews were taken into Venice in 1516 in the early 1500s because uh, they were needed here, you know. The Ottoman Empire needed the Jews in order to have doctors, in order to have um, merchants and moneylenders and, and printers and, you know, all sort of the necessary things that other people were either uneducated in doing or, or was not, not part of, of what they did here. And, and so when they took in all the Jews, thinking that would be a very good idea and a very good investment, they still wanted to keep them separated from society, you know, the dangers of, of getting involved with a Jew. They're good to make sure you stay alive, you know, if you're a doctor, but apparently not for anything else. So they gave the Jews an island here, which is called the Ghetto, the Ghetto Novo, the new ghetto. Now, before it was called ghetto, it was a place that was for the discardings of a foundry. Foundry metals were discarded on this island. And it comes from the word jetare, which means to throw away in Italian. So it was almost the place where they would throw away, send it to the jetto, the place where, where you throw away the, the garbage metals from the foundry. And as they gave this island to the Jews and then enclosed it, because in the beginning, of course, Jews were not free to go in and out after midnight and it was locked, but they were safe inside. It wasn't, it wasn't jail where they were tortured inside. They were safe inside, which was, which was the point. And only when Napoleon opened up the doors were they free to come and go whenever they wanted. At any rate, the Germans came because people were coming from all over Europe to settle here. They heard that it's a safe place for Jews. Germans came and they could not pronounce the J uh, for getare, which means like thrown away in Italian. And so they kept on saying getare, getare. It's, it's not the getto, it's the ghetto. And it stuck. So the German, the German pronunciation of ghetto stuck. And in fact, the first use of the word meaning what it does, you know, this enclosement to protect people or keep people out or however you wish to look at it, was here in Venice in Italy. This is the first ghetto referred to as such in the world, beginning its life in 1516 on an island in Canareggio. Hmm. The film begins without sound, no music, rolling credits of a story about you and your grandmother. Would you share it with our listeners? Well, interestingly enough, that story made it in the first edition of the film, but in the final edition of the film, it, it doesn't exist because it became inherent in the film, but I'll tell you the story anyway. The story is that my, uh, my family are, are um, a family of Holocaust survivors, a few of them, uh, most perished in fact, and my immediate grandmother, she, she did survive, my father's mother. And when she came to Canada is where she went, she had to leave one of her children behind because that child had a cough and was not allowed to go onto the boat. The child ended up with a, a relative family and perished at Auschwitz. In that period of time where this girl was still alive, she would be sending letters to my grandmother and my grandfather and my grandmother kept these letters 
in a paper lunch bag in a desk in her home that I happened to come upon when I was a very little boy. And I asked her about these letters and she talked about them being a place from home, you know, letters of home. And of course, it was about the daughter that she lost in the Holocaust. However, the story about the letters themselves was that once my grandmother had come, she, she was constantly looking for home because when something like that happens and you're displaced, that home never quite, where is home after that? And that is rather what I grew up with, the idea of home. And my grandmother had a bag of important things stashed in the front closet and things that really should have been displayed, a silver cup, you know, memorabilia from old Europe. And I once asked her when I was a little boy coming upon it, I said, why are these things hiding in the front closet in, in a suitcase when they should be displayed in the house? She says, because you never know when they're going to come and send you away. That's what I grew up with. And so the idea of the Jews finding a home in Venice this notion of where home is, that they could come here and know that they were safe behind these closed doors and eventually have an island of their own, even though it was very difficult, was something that moved me a great deal. The scholars featured in the film explain the history of the Jews in Venice. What do we learn about their role in Venetian life beginning in the 16th century? You mentioned the, the need for doctors and merchants and money lenders. How did the role of Jews in Venice continue within Venetian society at large? Well, in the original days, one was had to be identified as a Jew. You did not go into town and have, were able to be free to, to go wherever you are. You were able to be free to go wherever you wanted to do business, but you had to wear a yellow cap and a yellow scarf so that if somebody saw you from a distance, they knew that they would be engaging with a Jewish person. And the goal essentially was to have the Jews in Venice for what they could contribute to society, but not to mix with them and maybe a, a negative way to say it, but it's true, and not to dirty up the population, but to have the Jews for what they were necessary for, which was whether it be money lending or medicine or printing or so on and so forth. The important thing about the Jewish position here is when Napoleon came in 1797 and he abolished the ghetto walls, the ghetto gates, which I didn't know that. That was a fascinating thing to, that Napoleon, you know, liberté, égalité, fraternité, that with his ethic of equality, you know, for such a guy who was considered a destroyer of Europe later on, to be the person to have actually set the Jews free in Venice and over most of Europe is really quite a fascinating thing to learn. I had no idea, and a lot of people don't know that. I was surprised to find out. And so in 1797, when that happened, Jews moved out of the ghetto and they began to have palaces and, and very elegant homes and became a part of the fabric of Venice. They were always a small society and small group. You know, today there are 400 and some Jews, and I think at the height, maybe it was 6,000, something like that maybe 10,000, I don't know the exact numbers, but there were never there were never a lot of them, but they were prominent. They were important in terms of what they did in Venice. Uh, I was also interested to learn that Shylock was not a Venetian character. Shylock was actually probably something born out of Shakespeare's mind um, based on a character in Mestre. I had no idea that 
that that Shylock was in fact not a character of the ghetto. And I also learned that Shakespeare really didn't talk much about the ghetto. He spoke about the Rialto Bridge, but that's it. Learning all this, understanding that Jews had a very prominent position in society as time went on. But I also did learn something else, which was fascinating, is that in the early 1500s, I think 1560s, that when the Jews were in Venice and they were the lead printers because they had the printing press from Germany, they were printing the Talmud and that the Pope at the time made a fire, ordered a fire to be made in San Marco, in Piazza San Marco, and have all the Talmuds burned. So all the great Jewish studies burned and then some 30 or 40 years later, all Hebrew books were to be burned in the square. And only books that were allowed to be published that were Hebrew of Hebrew content were books that have been censored. I don't know what they were censoring out of it, but that was another interesting thing to learn. So as safe as one thinks one is, one is not entirely safe ever, it seems. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitz, speaking with the filmmaker and pianist Hershey Felder about his new documentary, Musical Tales of the Venetian Jewish Ghetto, screening at the Atlanta Jewish Film Festival. Music plays a crucial role in the film. It's interwoven throughout the narrative, and all the performances are recorded live. What surprised me was the style of much of the music. It's klezmer music, very well performed, but not a type of music specific to Venice. Why do you feature Eastern European klezmer music so prominently in the film? Well, the interesting thing was, of course, coming from a world of music myself, I could have featured Venetian gondola music, but that was entirely Venetian music, music that was born here. You know, we could have used Vivaldi, the Four Seasons. I, you know, there's so much that could have been used to represent Venice that had actually been created here. A lot of music. Uh, let's face it, Stravinsky's even buried here in San Michele, so he could have pulled out from Stravinsky. But to me, what was interesting and why it made sense was like me and the many artists and musicians before me and people who have come, Venice is not a place where you sort of emerged in terms of the ghetto. Venice was a place that you came to from somewhere else and you found a home here. Germans came, Greeks came, Turks came, they came from all over the place. And klezmer music is a transient music. It's a music that traveled. traveled from one place to the next, the bands traveled. It's not just particularly Eastern European in the way where it was this town and that was the music of that town. It went all over and it took on its own shape all over. So when we had klezmer music here within the context of the film, the idea of it was to represent this concept that what came here was transient. It came here from all other places to create its home here. And what's really funny is for my sense of the film, putting klezmer music 
played by Italians, by the way. That's the other, <laughs> you know, who are all first chair members of the uh, Maggio Symphony Orchestra <laughs> in uh, Florence under Zubin Mehta on top of it also. Ah. It was just this concept of, of coming from afar and bringing what you have from afar and making it fit within the fabric of what's there, which is basically what the ghetto is. There are five synagogues within a square mile or whatever it is, each one more glorious than the next. And you sort of ask, go to that old joke, why do you have five synagogues on one desert island? Because you see the other four, they're the ones that I don't go to. <laughs> you know, um, which which is, uh, of course, an old wonderful joke, a hoary joke. But the fact is that people came from all over and they contributed what they had to bring to Venice from all over. And this felt like a natural way to be honest about that as a concept rather than why don't we play gondolier music, which would be dishonest because I doubt you would have heard gondolier music racing through the ghetto in the schools. I doubt that very much. <laughs> No, but I actually, it took me back to college. I actually thought about Salomone Rossi. There was a Jewish composer, a contemporary of Vivaldi, active at the time. And I was just very intrigued with why you wanted to include klezmer music, and you've explained it now. There's also a fair amount of sacred music in the documentary, beautifully played by the cellist Amit Pellet. What is your relationship with him? I met Amit, my goodness, I can tell you exactly when, 20, almost 30 years ago. We were both doing events in Palm Beach, Florida, which is a world away from Venice. Um, and I was playing and he was playing. And I think I went to hear him play in a concert and he came to see me do some music and theater, if I'm not mistaken. And somehow over the years, we we remained in touch and with e when email, because this is before email, if you can imagine. And we always said, you know, it'd be fun to do something together. And so when this came up, I said, you know, and he's Greek. So, of course, uh, by origin, I mean, he was born in Israel, but his family went from Greece to Israel in the early 1900s. So once again, here was someone who was very interesting and in that he would have been someone who would have come to the Venice ghetto uh, from Greece, perhaps, you know, 500 years ago in order to find a safe place to be, because that was uh, what happened. In fact, the Levantine shul that is here, the Levantine synagogue, uh, is made up of all the Greek transplants. And I thought, wouldn't it be interesting to have someone with that origin? So it was basically this diverse group of people within the Jewish world that came from all over, exactly the same way it would have been three or four hundred years ago. 
or even 500 years ago when all these tools were created because the synagogues were created within a very short time from one another as each community came. It's, you know, you can't really um, disassociate this too much from currently what it would be like for Jewish people to say, oh, where do I go? I go to Williamsburg in New York because there I'll feel safe or I'll go to, Bar or uh, we'll go to live in Tel Aviv or we'll go to live in Jerusalem because there I know I'm welcomed and I feel safe and so on and so forth. So you have a lot of, a lot of that very similar idea with people coming to Venice. It's actually a contemporary idea. We, we can we can understand it in contemporary terms because it still happens today with other locations. Of those five synagogues, how many are in use? Well, they're reno not renovating. I don't think that's the right word because they're not renovating. They're restoring three now that they have to, you know, to fix the floor of this one because if not, people will fall in. And the other one, they're, they're doing some of the artwork, restoring, withdrawing the years of paint that had been put on and a cheap floor that had been put on. When you're looking at something that is quite, quite literally, you know, 500 years old, they want to bring it back to its origins. And so that takes a great deal of time. The two that are in use are the Spanish and the Levantine. And they are in the Ghetto Novo, so in the newer, but so they're the, the synagogues that were built later meaning 1582 as opposed to 1530 or something like that. And it's just staggering. You see these buildings and, and they've been in use continually. In fact, I went to a high holiday services in one of them and I was just mesmerized to think that, you know, okay, you go to the Wailing Wall in Israel, it's been around for a lot longer, but still the idea that for 500 years people have been in the same place and this is what it looked like is a very touching and moving idea. At times, this film has the feel of a travelogue with you and some close friends. The musical tales in the film are from people whose stories don't originate in Venice. Would you talk about including these Jewish histories from elsewhere within the context of a film about Venice? As I mentioned before, and I'm quite careful, it's, you know, the, the title has been finding its way to various things. I call it musical tales in the Venetian ghetto. Because yes. It's very different than musical tales of the Venetian ghetto. Those are two different things. Yes. You know, rabbis came here, doctors came here, bankers came here, all kinds of people in their professions came here over the years to be part of the fabric of the society here eventually builders and teachers, you know, and as time went on, when uh, and, and businessmen and, and lawyers and so on and so forth. Again, this goes back, my concept was, as I say early on in the film, was bringing together people who might have been the same group of people who came together 400 years ago from various places in the world. You know, when we say somebody is Venetian, they would have had to have been born here later because the first people that came here, they weren't Venetian. They weren't Venetian at all. In fact, there weren't Jews here. And the Venetians, uh, you know, Attila the Hun, I think, was the first person to come here and to originate the um, island, so to speak, the main island, so to speak. Well, I mean, I don't know how many people are descendant from Attila the Hun. And so people are, are transient and they've come here and that's what I wanted to create. Of course, one of the important things is I also include the Venetians that are here, people who were born here. But still, even if you track them back, 
their families don't come from here. Do you, do you see what I mean? So it's it all kind of starts with the ghetto and people coming from all over the world. So let's call this the new Venetians. And I think one of the one of the people in the film talk about the new Venetians, that Venetians are not people who were born here because they tend to be leaving, but the new Venetians are people who come and choose to make Venice their home, which is essentially what has happened over the past five or 600 years. Mm. Hershey Felder, thank you so very much for talking with us about musical tales in the Venetian ghetto. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure speaking to you. Musician, filmmaker, and actor Hershey Felder. The Atlanta Jewish Film Festival will host the world premiere of Felder's documentary, Musical Tales of the Venetian Jewish Ghetto, Monday, February 20th at City Springs Theater. More information is on our website, wabe.org. The Atlanta Jewish Film Festival culminates on Tuesday with the jury prize winner, Killing Me Softly, a documentary on the life and iconic works of lyricist composer Charles Fox. I'll be on stage interviewing the filmmaker and composer Tuesday evening at the Sandy Springs Performing Arts Center. More information about the event is online at ajff.org. In a moment, WABE's H. Johnson talks about master jazz whistler Ron McCroby. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. WABE's H. Johnson has been with our station since 1978 as host of both blues classics and jazz classics. H educates and entertains WABE listeners every Friday and Saturday night. He recently added City Lights music contributor to his impressive resume and joins us every other Friday to share some of his encyclopedic knowledge of jazz. This is H. Johnson's Jazz Moment. This is going to be a pleasure. A pleasure by that I mean I'm going to talk about someone who uh, knocks me out. Actually, everyone I talk about on this program, I want to thank you very much, Lois, for allowing me to do this. But everyone I talk about, I enjoy one way or another, some to higher levels than others. But this guy has reached the peak of my enjoyment, and I hope that uh, after I introduce him to you that you'll feel the same way because he's a unique jazz artist. He played flute, clarinet, and he played piano, but there wasn't anything special about the way he played those instruments. But when he started doing this one thing that grabbed my attention when I first heard him and saw him, he was on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. And you know how many years ago that was. Some of you listening right now don't even know who Johnny Carson was. That's how far back I go. Anyway, he was on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson and he was whistling. Whistling. I mean, you heard the song Whistle While You Work. That was his work. He was whistling. Oh, he was fantastic. His name is Ron McCroby. And because of him, I started doing research to find out if there are any other whistlers. There were some in jazz. 
Toot Steelman's comes to mind, well, some others. They dipped and dabbed in it, but they didn't do it to the extent that Ron McCroby did. I mean, he would improvise so perfectly like an instrument and play those jazz lines and that language. You know, jazz is a language, and once you learn it, it's in your blood. Yeah, jazz is something else. And to whistle, to whistle to express yourself, he was fantastic. Ron McCroby, the jazz whistler. And he had a couple of albums out when he was just beginning. Then all of a sudden, he passed away. So all we have are the uh, recordings from a few TV shows on YouTube. But having said all of that, I just want to introduce you to Ron McCroby and have you listen to him do something here on this program with Lois Righteous. He's going to whistle for us. I don't know whether we should do All the Things You Are or uh, When You Wish Upon a Star or something like that. Take your pick, Lois, and play one of those tunes by Ron McCroby. W.A.B.E.'s H. Johnson telling us about jazz whistler Ron McCroby. Tune in tonight at 10 on 90.1 for Blues Classics with H. Johnson. And he hosts Jazz Classics on 90.1 every Saturday beginning at 8 p.m. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Monday at 11 a.m., author Zaria Ware talks about her new book, Black Art, the audacious legacy of black artists and models in Western art. I'm your host, Lois Reitzis. We'd love for you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on both Facebook and Instagram. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Sounds Like ATL is a music documentary series that takes an in-depth look at the artists amplifying Atlanta's famed music community. Built around a desire to highlight Atlanta's diverse and world-renowned music scene, each episode features unforgettable, intimate musical performances by fresh new musical guests, each with exclusive interviews about the stories behind their music. Listen at wabe.org or wherever you find your podcasts. Ever wondered where to find the best dumplings in town? Curious about Atlanta's obsession with lemon pepper? Join us on Savory Stories, a new podcast as we uncover the untold tales behind Atlanta's culinary scene. From the roots of your favorite dishes to the creators that bring them to life, we're diving deep into the heart of the city's food culture. Listen to Savory Stories at wabe.org slash podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. W-A-B-E. 